Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Eamon Burdett. This morning, an uh, interesting topic. I promised you last week, and I wish I had a, been able to have more time on this subject, because there are a lot of questions when it comes to understanding who the Antichrist is in Bible prophecy. What did the Bible teach, even amongst believing Christians? Now, I could walk into many Christian bookshops, or most bookshops, and I could pick up at least five books on the Antichrist, and I would get five very different views of who it is. And I remember 15 years ago, there was this young Seventh-day Adventist innovators in America who were making these uh, new DVDs called The Antichrist Power Revealed. And they went out live with a camera and a microphone and asked a question to people, who do you think the Antichrist is? And one young man replied, I met him last night. He bummed a smoke off me. So people have a very different view of who it is. On Google, people will say it's Bill Gates. Other people say it might be Donald Trump. Even Bob Dylan, that famous singer, had an opinion or believed in the Antichrist will come. But this morning, we're not going to go to Google. We're not not going into the Christian bookstore, but we're going to draw from the divine source, God's holy word. Amen? Let me be clear this morning. As Seventh-day Adventists, understanding who the Antichrist is will not save us. But it's going to help us when it comes to deception in these very last days that we live. Amen? It's going to help us. We see what's coming. The worst part about deception is that you don't know you're being deceived until God's word is shining the light upon that deception. Amen? God's word is the great deception detector. Amen? It really is. It really is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just pray for the Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, it's important to know who the little horn is. It's important to know as you look at Revelation 13, that great composite beast, he rises out of the ocean. Lord, help us to understand why you've placed so much time and effort and importance upon this. That the Antichrist ministry is there to blot out the Lord Jesus Christ before your people. The Antichrist ministry is a counterfeit of the true picture of Jesus Christ. Father, we just pray for the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts this morning, to understand what the Word of God is trying to tell us this morning, to warn us of the things that are coming. Father, we pray for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We pray for that divine love that you love people, Lord. You have not warned us about this because you don't love people, but because you do love people. Come out of her, my people, you pray. Come out of her, my people. Lord, you're not willing that anyone should be lost. It's not about the people. 
who live up to all the light that they know when it comes to worshipping you. It's about the system that holds the people in darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Revelation 12, we see this beautiful woman standing on the moon representing God's church. Then in Revelation 17, we see this fallen church with the, the great harlot. And then in Revelation 20, we see this new city of God, the new Jerusalem descending from heaven back to earth after a thousand years. But in Revelation 18, we see the fallen city of spiritual Babylon. In Revelation 14, we are called to worship him who created heavens and earth, the seas and the fountains of waters. In Revelation 13 will come a time when we'll be called to worship the image of the beast. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells us to baptise people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In Revelation 16, we see the counterfeit trinity, or the Godhead, which we saw last week, that will be thrown first into the lake of fire. The dragon, the beast and the false prophet. I want you to understand this morning that for every truth that God has in the Bible, the devil has a counterfeit. Is that true? For everyone. And so the Antichrist is not so much openly against God. So as we look at this word, the simplest way to look at this, people think it's against Christ. But that word really is deceptive when you look at the word because Antichrist is not actually against Christ on the, on the surface. It's more openly, it's not so openly against God, but will claim to be God on earth. If, if they will talk like God, they will claim the power of God being a counterfeit Christ. You get the picture? So John warned us in his little letters just before the end of his ministry, and he says, little children, he's an old man, remember? He says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know this is the last hour. And so John tells us that almost 2,000 years, the spirit of the Antichrist has already started. And then he continued, for every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and that this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and is now already in the world. The spirit of the Antichrist had already started. And so Antichrist is made up of two things. It's seen as against Christ, but the most important thing is it's in the place of Christ. This second line is the most important thing to understand this morning of what's happening. This morning I want you to understand that the Antichrist is by far more in the place of Christ than openly against Christ on the surface. And so when you look at the word Antichrist, there are many other names. Remember in Revelation 12 verse 9 where Satan has many names, well Antichrist also has many names. It has Antichrist which is found in 1 John and 2 John. You have the beast which is found in Revelation 13, the first beast, the one that comes out of the sea. You have the son of perdition and the man of sin, which is 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter. And then you have the little horn of Daniel 7. These are all names that are pointing toward the same system. Jesus tells us, 
in the book of Daniel, in Matthew 24, about the book of Daniel, he says not only to read the book of Daniel, but to understand this prophetic book of Daniel. Jesus tells us. And then he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in a holy place, whoever reads, let them understand. We're told not just to read the book, but to understand what Daniel is trying to tell us. Now, most of you know the story of Daniel 2, the head of gold, armed and chest of silver, the brass, and the long life of the long legs of iron. And then the, the, the um, Rome breaks up into weak and strong nations being clay and iron. So you know that, most of you know that very much. The Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greece Empire, and the Roman Empire. But Daniel 7 repeats the same story. And this is the teaching skill that God uses over and over. So he reviews Daniel, when you go to Daniel 7, he reviews Daniel 2 and tells us the same story in Daniel 7. He repeats the same prophecies by reviewing Daniel 2 and then he enlarges or expands upon what Daniel 2 has taught us. He reviews Daniel 2 and then he expands the prophecy. So he tells us the same story and then he expands upon it. And I want you to notice that Jeremiah understood as well. In Jeremiah 4, the lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitants. So Jeremiah saw Babylon coming as well, just like Daniel. Then the Bible says, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said, Fuss to it, arise, devour much flesh. So the bear is lopsided when you look at it. You see this bear, it's lopsided when you look at it because it's a meter, it's a dual power, it's meter Persian. The Persians were always the stronger power, and there were three nations or three ribs in its mouth because it had to devour Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon basically to take over the then known world. And then we see this third beast come along. After this, I looked and there was another beast like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird, a beast who had four heads and the dominion was given to it. Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great, I don't know if you realise this, but at the age of 16, did you hear what I just said? At the age of 16, he begins his conqueror of the world. Do you realise that? And by the age of 32, he had accomplished that feat. In, in fact, history tells that he got to the borders of India and he wept like a baby because there's no more land to conquer. And as he lay dying to his generals, he said, whoever is the strongest can take the empire of Greece. He didn't have a son to pass it down to. And then we see this fourth beast in history. We see this history that none other generals, this fourth beast in history, that, um, which represents Rome, coming up, the fourth beast with iron teeth, and, and, and just crushes everything before it. God, the greatest teacher, tells us the same story and reviews Daniel 2 and tells us Daniel 7, and that's expands upon it. And I want to show you why, because when you look at Babylon here in the golden head, 
We see a lion with two wings. Why does God give the lion two wings? Because wings mean speed and, and, and going across the earth and destroying the earth. And so Babylon was a fairly powerful uh, empire that swept over the world fairly quickly. Medo-Persia is a bear with no wings because it was a slow uh, empire that clubbed the enemies to death slowly. But when you get to Greece, Greece is phenomenal. It has four wings. So he's, he's sweeping across the earth very, very quickly, very, very rapidly. And then we see, you know, we see the ten horns here, the ten toes, sorry. Then in Daniel we see we have ten horns. So we see there's a correspondence between the ten toes and the ten horns, which make, basically means a break-up of the Roman Empire over, over, over a long period of time. It doesn't get wiped out as a nation, as an empire. It slowly breaks up over time and comes into ten Western nations of Europe. Beloved, this is Nuremberg. This area here was where Hitler had his great rallies many, many times from about 1930-something right through World War II. Nuremberg was his favourite city in all of Germany. And in this city, when he had his rallies, he would have to have up to 700,000 people marching and rallying and working themselves up. He dreamt of Germany ruling for 1,000 years. But when you go to Nuremberg, and I didn't realise this, but I always thought that this building was a university, and I found out this week that this is the courthouse of Nuremberg. And I was there in 2013, and over its two doorways is a fascinating picture of Daniel 7. Notice what graces these doorways into this German court. In fact, this court is where the German Nazis were trialled in the Nuremberg courts. 199 officers went through this court system over the four years after World War II finished. And I want you to notice up here over these doorways, and I'll show you a close-up of it. Notice in that picture. Notice what graces the very entry doors of this archway. Here on the left here, we have Nebuchadnezzar. Notice he's a ruler, he's got his scepter. And behind Nebuchadnezzar is a lion with how many wings? Two wings, just like Daniel 7. If you go on the right-hand side, so if you go on the right-hand side, go back one more, this one here represents Cyrus the Great. And there you see a bear with how many ribs in its mouth? You can't see the ribs, but how many ribs in its mouth? Three. These people knew the prophecies of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Now if I go to the other doorway, we see here a Greece, Alexander the Great. See, he's the ruler. He had a leopard with how many heads? Four heads. And then if you go on the right-hand side, you see a Roman Caesar ruling, and you see this terrible beast that Daniel doesn't know how to describe with ten horns, and there's a little horn that rises amongst it. Now, when I was there in 2013, I got a close-up picture of um, Alexander the Great. See the four heads? One, two, three, four. The Empire of Rome, remember, broke up into four parts because the four generals under Alexander the Great didn't have the power to subdue the other generals, and so they broke Greece into four parts, and that's why the leopard has four heads. But I want you to notice here, this is the fourth beast, the ten horns, and a little horn comes up where? Amongst them, with the eyes of a man. Stunning detail. Exactly 
what Daniel 7 teaches. And I find it interesting that in this courthouse of Nuremberg, in this judgment place, and Daniel is a lot about judgment. Is that right? There is judgment through the book of judgment, through the book of Daniel. In fact, it finishes with judgment, especially in Daniel 7. Beloved, the incredible thing is this building goes back to the 16th century as far as I can find out. I can't prove it, but what I've been told that that goes back to 1650 AD. For 400 years, Daniel 7 has been telling the story to the city of Nuremberg, and there was Hitler in the middle of Nuremberg, believing that he's going to be ruling for a thousand years, and yet this prophecy of Daniel 7 was testifying against it. It blows my mind. Bible prophecy testified against the desires of all these rulers who want to take over Europe. The Bible says that the ten horns are what? Who are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom out of broken uh, Roman Empire. Daniel was considering the horns. And I want you to notice, he knows Daniel 2 by now. He has a vision of Daniel 7. But the thing that really gets Daniel, he's considering these horns. He's attracted to these horns. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up amongst them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous word. Pompous words in your margin of the Bible may come up as blasphemes or blasphemes God, okay? So Daniel hones in on his ten horns and his little horn that rises amongst them. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And so you can imagine Daniel, a child of God, one who loved God, one who served God, and one who prayed God. And Daniel's taken nearly a thousand years down in time, and he sees God's so-called people persecuting God's people. Do you get the point? It would have your attention, wouldn't it? And it comes out in Revelation 17 as well. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And he shall intend to change the times and laws. And then the saints shall be given into his time, into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This is a 1260-year prophecy. Daniel now sees that this power is speaking against God himself. This power is, is, is persecuting God's people. He's even trying to change God's laws. Now it's really got the attention of Daniel. And yet so many are asking today, who is this Antichrist power? There is a history of 1260 years of Dark Ages period. Why are people asking this question today? Saints, if we are looking, if we are in the church and we're looking outside the church to find who the Antichrist is, we are looking in the wrong direction. Because he portrays himself like God. He talks like he is God. He receives worship like he is God. So you don't go into the heathen world looking for the Antichrist. You don't go into Islam looking for the Antichrist. You don't go into the unbelieving looking for the Antichrist. You look inside the church. Wycliffe was known as a morning star of the Reformation. 
And who did he, John Wycliffe, see as the Antichrist upon earth? Why would a Catholic priest be asking this or studying this? Because he knew that his church needed great reform in his day, 15th century. There's a time when there's two popes were contending to be the head pope of the church. There was a time in history when the Dark Age Church was contending or fighting over being the leader of the religious world. And Wycliffe asked a valid question back then. Were these two popes who were fighting each other telling the truth? Wycliffe asked the question, were these two popes telling the truth? Martin Luther, when he, he loved his church, when you look at the story of Martin Luther, he loved his church and praise be to God, when he went to Wittenberg and he nailed on those 95 points of what he struggled with within his church, he nailed it on within two months because the printing press had just started, within two months it basically spread right across Europe, this Reformation teaching. God turbocharged his message, his powerful reformation that swept across Europe within months. Knots, Queen Mary, I believe, was more afraid of an entire, no, so she was more afraid of John Knotts' preaching than facing an entire army of soldiers. That's how powerful he used to preach. John Knotts' first uh, sermon was Daniel chapter 7. John recognised that this power was the son of perdition that Paul had warned us about in 2 Thessalonians. Even John Wesley fought the same way back there in the 18th century toward the end of the Dark Ages. And so we see that many of the great Christian reformers, many of the Protestants believed what we're seeing here this morning. And let me say to you this morning, when you look at church history, Protestants aren't squeaky clean. There are many times that Protestants were persecuting people as well. We have to recognise that in history. Nearly all of the reformers recognised who the little horn was, the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. Now notice Paul in Acts chapter 20. As he looks towards the end of his ministry, as he looks towards the future after he departs off the scene for God, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, also from among yourselves men will rise speaking perverse things, drawing away disciples after themselves. Apostle says, Paul says, you have more to fear from within than without. That's what he's saying. Beloved, the issue we all face is worship. In fact, if you think about the Bible story from Genesis to Revelation, the issue that battles is constantly over worship. Who are we going to worship? Who are we going to give our allegiance to? He will appear as a subtle imposter. An anti or anti means substitute. I want you to think about that. Anti or anti means substitute. It means instead of. It also means he will appear as a subtle imposter. Think about that when you look at the Antichrist power. The ten horns 
ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them who shall be different from all the first one and who shall subdue three kings. We see this, the Herolites, the Vandals, the Rostrogoths, see these three nations here back in those days? They were wiped out by this power through Justinian and other emperors. They were wiped off the face of the earth. By the Herolites were the first to go in 1493, but the Vandals and Ostrogoths, the last power, the last nation was wiped out by 538 AD, a very important day or date in Bible prophecy. And when you look at these dates, within 45 years, these nations were wiped out because they're Aryan. They didn't really believe in the divinity of Christ, and so they wiped them off the face of the earth. When you look at the historians, if man considers the original of the great church dominion, he will easily perceive that the papacy is none other than the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon the grave empire. In other words, he's saying that Empire Rome turns into Church of Rome through history. And when you go to Italy, when you go to Rome, it is fascinating, you go through all these ruins of the great emperors of the Roman Empire. You go from one emperor to another Roman emperor to another Roman emperor and you stand right here and you look across and there you see the dome of, uh, of, of the uh, Vatican right there in front of you. It's incredible when you see it eye to eye. Beloved, ten horns are ten horned kings who arise from the kingdom and another shall arise from them and he shall be different from the first ones. In church history, out of the ruins of the Roman Empire, there gradually rose a new order of states where central point with the papal see, therefore inevitably resulted in a position not only new, but very different from the former empire or the former world. The Bible says his appearance was greater than his fellows. He had more clout, he had more power. Under the Roman Empire, the popes had no temple power. But when the Roman Empire broke up over that long period of time, everything changed and they started to have a lot of say in religious and also secular things. The Bible says he should speak pompous words against the Most High. Now, we might think, well, that's just a dark age talk, that there has been a change. Has there? been any change. I want you to notice a date. This is post-Dark Ages. They claim this. And what troubles me when I look at this statement, when I look at this year, what really troubles me is that they have learnt nothing from the Dark Ages at all. And so the Bible is completely correct that this persecution will come again just before Jesus returns. The agenda has not changed. The next year, the very next year in 1895, they claim that he is Christ upon earth. Just one year later, they make this claim. In Mark chapter 2, verse 5, there's a, you know, that story where, where, the, where the, the friends are bringing the one, the, the, their friend to be healed from Jesus. And Jesus says to this man, this paralytic to be healed, he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And so the scribes are sitting there and, they, and they're thinking in their heads and they're thinking, why did this man, Jesus, speak blasphemies? Can he forgive sins? 
but God alone. See, they didn't believe that Jesus could, they didn't believe that he was divine. And so they say, they're looking at Jesus, and Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven you, he's healed. And they're thinking, how did Jesus, being a man, forgive sins? So blasphemy, the first one, is forgiving sins when you're not God. Okay, that's the first way we can look at it. The first definition is claiming to be able to forgive sins when you're not God according to the Bible. That's not my definition. That's not man's definition. That's the Bible's definition of blaspheming God. The second definition of blaspheming in John chapter 10, verse 34, you see another story there. When the Jews answered him saying, for good work, they're talking to Jesus, the leaders are talking to Jesus, for good work we don't stone you, but for claiming that you are God, that is why we want to stone you. They didn't believe that he was from the Father, that he was God's son. So claiming to or making self God is blaspheming God. Paul says, now brethren concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, and he's talking about the second coming, our gathering together to him, we ask you not be seen shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the Christ as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you. I find it interesting that Paul was talking about the last days. He said, let no one what? Deceive you. When Jesus talked about Matthew 24, when they asked him for the signs and how long till he comes, the first thing that Jesus talked about is deception. When Paul talked about the second coming or just before he comes, Paul also says, let no one deceive you. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes and that the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself all that is called God, all that is worth it, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is strong language. Paul uses the term son of perdition only twice. Once for the, sin, the man of sin, and second, for talking about referring to Judas. Remember, Judas betrayed Jesus from where? Judas wasn't a Pharisee. Judas wasn't a scribe. Judas wasn't a Roman. He was an inner 12 disciple of Jesus Christ, called the son of perdition. Jesus himself calls him as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, I have lost no one except for the son of perdition. He's talking about Judas, who betrays him with a kiss. And so we see this great falling away in the ancient church. You know, Sunday Lord instituted, Easter, Christmas. The, the leader becomes Pontifex. Mary is worshipped in place of Easter. And then you go to the Saturday, it declared an enforced day of work. So they're uplifting Sunday worship or the first day and they're, and they're making it hard for those who are keeping the seventh day Sabbath. They start burning incense, practice uh, Babylonian Lent. So there's a lot of Babylonian traditions and, 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 and things that are all running into this church. Easter eggs are instituted. And you go through it, worship of image and saints. That's against what the God teaches, or against what the commandments teach us. Purgatory. Priests not being able to be married. 
and your confessions of the priests. Bible reading by laymen is forbidden. If we lived in those days, you were not allowed to read the good book. In fact, you would die for reading this book at sometimes. You would die for owning that book. You weren't allowed to have that book in your house. You weren't allowed to read that book. You weren't allowed to teach that book. No wonder the world was so stark in those days. But it keeps going. Purgatory, tradition declared equal to Bible. In fact, often tradition is higher than the Bible truth when you look at this organisation. Absolute infallibility of the Pope. Look at the year saints. This not very long ago. This is a year before I was born. This is almost our days. The Bible says that there will be a falling away from the truth. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against who? The saints, and he was prevailing against them. Here we see the third definition of blaspheming. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Paul talks about how he was a former blasphemer of God. He was a persecutor of God's people in the name of God. And so the third definition of blaspheming God is when you persecute God in the name of God. That's what Paul was. He was the one that was holding a coat, remember, when Saul, when Paul was stoned to death. So when Stephen was stoned to death, Saul becomes Paul. Beloved, in the name of God, he shall persecute the saints of the Most High. I can take you to one day, just one day, and there was 30,000 people slaughtered in 1572 because they believed in what? The Word of God. Because they believed in Jesus. These were good, able-minded people who loved God, who were intellectually very switched on, who stood at their ultimate price for this Word. Amen. May, may we, by the grace of God, stand the same as these great people in history. That's what it says here. Again, 1989, it's not very long ago. The church has persecuted only a tyro or a novice. In church history, we will deny that. When she thinks it's good to use physical force, she will what? She will use it. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, by the word of God, by, I swear by God that this persecution will come back. Again, just as Revelation 13 teaches us. Revelation 13 tells us that he causes, he causes, he causes three times. That means force worship. He's causing people not being able to buy a soul unless they receive the mark of the beast or the image of the beast or the number of his name. Beloved, he shall intend to change the times and the laws. As Seventh-day Adventists, can we accept that? Can we accept that as Seventh-day Adventists? God forbid. What's the year? Look at this next one. Look at the year. 1990 what? Five. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church, the dark age church had ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday, the first day. Not from any direction noted in the scriptures, but from the church's own sense of its power. 
Can we accept that? Can we accept man's ideas or man's traditions? There's no way. There's no way. The Bible says that the saints, talking about the Dark Age period, would be given to his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So that's talking about the little horn power. And so in Bible prophecy, Ezekiel 4 sits, and in Numbers it talks about a, a day equals a year in Bible prophecy, talking about prophetic days. So a time equals one year, it's 360 days in the Hebrew calendar. Times is two years, half a time is 12 Half is half a year, 180 days. So you have a total of 1,260 years. So five times, seven times so, the Bible talks about this 1,260-year period, either 42 months, the 1,260 days, or a time, times, and half a time. Five times in the book of Revelation and twice in the book of Daniel. This prophecy is so prominent, it is so powerful, it is so important because it begins a dark age time and it ends a dark age time. And then it represents that we understand that God is right on time. The, the final year is 538. Remember? That's the year that the third Aryan tribe was wiped out by the, uh, by the powers back then. Justinian made a law or a decree, and the empire became, you know, it was, the empire shifted from one to the other. And so the key year, saints, it's 538 AD, where Empire Rome, uh, the Empire of Rome is transferred to Church of Rome. So we see 1260 years. This prophecy here is one that just blows my mind how God can predict this organisation, the little horn, 1,000 years in advance. And then he tells you what it's going to do to God, to God's people, and for how long. The last uh, tribe was destroyed by when? 538. At this same year, she got her, her uh, ultimate power and away she went. 1798 is a very important year. In fact, when we went to Rome, the city of Rome, I want to tell you the story about how this happened. Napoleon, you've heard of him, haven't you? You can go to Rome City and you can go down to a certain street and down the street, Napoleon's nephew was getting married. And the, the, the sitting pope that time in Rome had, had uh, basically organised this uprising against France. They went down, there was a great rally at the wedding, and his nephew got killed. And that's why General Berthier sent in, was sent in by Napoleon and took the, the papacy out of power and dragged them into the French country uh, back there. And we followed where they were, all the castles where the popes were taken prisoner and you can see his great emblem in his room where he was in the castle as they took him back to France. The reason why they took him to France, because if he ever escaped, they would never let him go. They would tear him apart. Beloved, how do we identify it? Well, it arises out of the fourth beast. Very, very clearly it arises out of the fourth beast. It comes up among the ten horns, Western Europe, France, Germany, Italy, that kind of area. It comes up after the ten horns. How do we know that? Well, it come up among the ten horns, didn't it? Can't be, can't be in the empire of Babylon. It can't be in the empire of Greece or Rome. It comes up after the ten horns. 
It was different from all the others. The others were secular, the others were more of a power, but this one is not only secular, but it's also religious. It's a state religious power. Very, very easy to see that it's very different from all the other powers. It is greater than the others. It wiped out three of those tribes because of religious persecution or religious belief. It uprooted those three kings within 45 years. It spoke what great words against who? Against the Most High. It persecuted the saints of the Most High for 1,260 years. He also claimed to change the times and the Lord of God. He reigned for a time, times, and half a time, which is 1,260 years. But the Bible says the court will be seated. Amen? And remember, we started about this over the last few years. This is God's divine, supreme court in heaven. Amen? And so this tells us that this power is going to go right through until the second coming of Jesus. And then a judgment will be made against it. But the court will be seated. Here we are as we come to a close of Daniel 7. And they shall take away his what? His dominion. To consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. This kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Amen. God always has a last say. Beloved, knowing and understanding who the Antichrist power is helps us to prepare our minds and our hearts to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. It won't be such an overwhelming surprise to Seventh-day Adventists or Bible-believing people across the world as we face these closing scenes. The most important thing is that we know Jesus. Amen? In fact, in John 17, 3, Jesus said, uh, in John 17, the third verse, he said, This is life eternal, that you might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The issue, Genesis to Revelation, is who will we worship and follow? I, des- I hope this morning that you desire to follow Jesus Christ, amen, rather than be misled by the Antichrist. Secondly, we need to recognise that the Bible clearly identifies the Antichrist power. We don't have to go to Google. We don't have to go to the bookshop. We don't have to have man's ideas. The Bible is very, very clear about who this power is. Thirdly, I want to commit to following Jesus Christ and keeping his word and his Lord. I want to finish with this story. In World War II, there was a, a man named Kata, K-A-T-A, an indigenous chief. His father was a chief of his island on the Solomon Islands. And he led that basically over 200 Allied personnel to safety during World War II against the Japanese. He saved over 187 Anzacs and 27 US pilots who were shot down in the planes around their islands. Cater claimed that his courage came from Jesus Christ. Amen? He had been born of cannibal parents. Can you imagine this? When the Seventh-day Adventist missionaries went there, he was the first ten to be baptised on his island. His parents were cannibals. 
He becomes a seven-day Adventist. He accepts Jesus as his saviour. And towards the end of World War II, one of the Japanese officers asked him to do something that was against his conscience, against his faith, and he refused to do it. A very similar story to Desmond Doss. He refused to do it. So the officer ordered him to be flogged. So they got a 200-litre drum, you know, the big fuel drum, the diesel drum. They, they lopped him over the diesel drum and they got a big cane and they belted him and belted him and belted him until there was blood everywhere in front of the whole village. The officer ordered Kata to obey, but he still refused. He refused. The officer was enraged. He pulled out his pistol and he pistol whipped him over and over and over again until he knocked him completely out. He was so enraged, they tied him up against a tree and they put him up against a firing squad and said, the officer, the Japanese officer, is going to make an example out of Kata that all the other villagers were not going to disobey the, the, the Japanese officer. And so he said, when I count to three, I wanted to fire. They had him tied up at a tree. One, two, but three wouldn't come out. He couldn't say the word three. So second time, one, two, and the word wouldn't come out. And then his third time, I wanted to fire on the count of three. One, two, and it still wouldn't come out. The officer just lost the plot and stormed off and left him. And so they took him, Kader and Luda, to a prison. They slammed him in the prison and they locked him up. They left him. That night, at 10 o'clock, the, sun start, the moon started to come up and God's people, the SDA Christians, they started praying. They, started, they knew that they couldn't break the prison open. They knew they, they were outnumbered by the soldiers and all the guns. And so they said, Lord... We, we're going to pray. That's a more powerful weapon. We're going to pray that, that he will be released. They will both be released. At 10 o'clock, when I started praying, as the moon came up over the Solomon Islands, a tall man came with a key and unlocked the prison doors and said, called them both and said, come with me. He took them by the arms. He led them out down to the beach. And he said, you'll see a canoe there with two paddles. Go home. They got in the canoe and they paddled home. Kata survived and became, continued to be a leader there on Solomon Island. It was interesting that before the, the Japanese came, he went and labelled all the SDA materials. He took them right up in the jungle. He hid it all. He took all the, the, the missionary stuff. He hid it all and, and put uh, camouflage it all. He preserved everything because he believed that God was going to help them survive this war and he'd become an, the missionaries would come back. And they did. Amen? Amen? And I want you to think about this story. There are many times in the future when things are going to look very dark. Things are going to look very bleak. Things are going to look very, very impossible. But we serve the living God. Amen? We serve the living God. We don't have to worry about pretenders who pretend to be Christ. We have to worry about the living God. Amen? Beloved, by the grace of God, by the love of God, may we stand as sons and daughters of the living God 
in these changing times. You know, the other day, as I had prepared for the funeral, I lost my beautiful black coat that comes down here. If you see it, please give it back. Please tell me where it is. I miss my coat. I spent two hours the other day trying to find a coat, a decent jacket to wear at the funeral, and it was all rubbish out there. It was rubbish stuff out there. I was shocked. Our world has changed, hasn't it? Our world has changed. And I don't believe it's going to get better. I have probably had the worst six, eight weeks I've ever had in my life. I've already performed three funerals this I've got a fourth one coming up. I have never performed this many funerals this year that I have this year. I look at people like Stephanie who's suffering so much. People are suffering everywhere. We need to pray for each other. Amen. We need to encourage one another. We never know what's going on in someone's lives. We never know what someone is going through. Give them a smile. Give them an encouragement. Give them a text message. Give them a phone call. I haven't seen you, brother or sister. Give them words of love and encouragement. Hang on until Jesus comes. Amen. May God bless you all. This message was made available by the Victoria Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Vic Park SDA Church. This is the Hamilton family with the Promise Keeper. The Father called to Abraham and promised him a son to be an heir, a people vast more numerous than the sand shall be his children from this covenant. The Father spoke to from the bush I see my people needy and oppressed Now take my children out of Egypt's sands and lead them to my promised land Trust the promise keeper His promises endure How should I Exceeding great and precious are his promises to me. Trust the promise keeper, he is the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Father looked upon the fallen world. Promise to redeem it through his Son. If you believe that Christ died in your place, 
has promised you are surely saved. His promises are found throughout his word to keep us and supply our every need. A promise to forgive when we confess. A hope of life eternal with Uncle Gordon, where you will hear first-hand accounts of answers to prayer and miracles from God. Oh, by the way, I think adults will like this too. Hi boys and girls, lovely to be with you. It's Uncle Gordon here again today. When I was working in the Solomon Islands, one day I had a knock at the door. It was actually late at night and uh, there was a father who was obviously very, very worried and he said, can you please come down to my home? My baby is very, very sick and we think he is going to die. And then he began to tell me, you know, we haven't paid tithe. We haven't paid our offerings. We haven't done all sorts of things. And we think God is trying to, to punish us because of our wrong and he's going to let our little baby die. And I said to him, well, my God doesn't work that way and my God is your God. He doesn't work like that, but I'll follow you down. Tell me where you live and I'll come to your place. And so I went down to his place and he was living in what was a little fishing village where all the little homes were made of just thatch walls and thatch roofs and went into his home. And there was their little baby just lying, looking very almost like he was dead. He had been to the hospital for quite a few days and they had had injections in his neck and then when that swelled up too much, then he had injections in his bottom and he couldn't get comfortable because of all those injections. And, and so eventually the hospital had said to, said to the mum and dad, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. He's not responding. Just take him home and, uh, and have him at home for when he dies. And then the father said to me as we sat down with them all, but we don't want our little boy to die. Is there something you can do? And as I looked around the room, there were a lot of their family. A lot of the relatives were there too. And a lot of those ones didn't know about Christ. They didn't know about God. They didn't know about Christianity. And they had no idea of God's love and God's care for them. And so I shared a little bit with them about how much God cares. He is the creator. He made us so he knows exactly what's going on inside us. He knows when things go wrong, when things are going right. 
And he isn't one to punish us because something we do wrong, because of something we've said. He doesn't come down and try and cause trouble on us. He loves us very, very much and he just wants us to enjoy just having a connection with him. Then I decided it was time to pray. So I prayed. I put my hand on on this little baby and said, Dear Jesus, there are a lot of people here who don't know about you who don't know about your love. Even mum and dad, even though they're Christians, they don't understand your love. They think that you're trying to punish them. And and I know, you know that that's not what you're trying to do. So please help them all to know that you are here, that you care for their precious little boy and that you can do something about it. And so I give him to you. The doctors couldn't do anything more. The nurses did all they could. Nobody else could do anything, but you can deal with it. So please, God, I give him to you now. Then I said, Amen. And then went home late that night. The next morning, about six o'clock in the morning, I was awakened by a loud banging at the door. And I quickly got up and put something around me and uh, went to the door. And there was the father, beaming. He said, Pastor, and my little boy is just perfect. After you had prayed last night, he just went into a big, deep sleep. And he slept all night and this morning he's woken up and he's wanting to be fed. He's wanting his mum to feed him. And there's no marks on his neck, no marks on his bottom. Everything has all been made new. He is perfect again. Thank you for praying for our little boy. And I brought the man inside and put my arm around him. And I said, we need to thank God. And so we had a little prayer of thanks to God that God wasn't punishing that man or his wife. He wasn't punishing any of the family, but he had demonstrated that day how every child was precious, how every family was important to him, how much he loved them all and wanted them to be happy families. You know that mum and dad, they were so grateful that they called that little boy then Smith. Well, they couldn't say the TH, so they just called him Smith. And so there's a young person somewhere in the Solomons now who has my name simply because I represented God to them. So boys and girls, your family's important to God too. And he wants you all to be happy. And as you want to share your life with him, he wants to be part of that. He wants you to talk to him and he wants to be with you, to guide you and to lead you each day. God blesses you. Let him be part of your life today. Thanks, boys and girls. Mission Stories for Kids with Uncle Gordon, a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.